Um, as we begin to start talking about book two, it's about um, the sadhanapada, the path realization. And literally, it's giving you the three-step path to teach you all about the conscious practice of yoga. Patanjali, or this collective group of individuals, gives the sadaka, the one who practices, practical step-by-step -step directions for reaching samadhi. So it's really asking you, how badly do you want it, right? And if the yoga sutras are golden rules to help people to um, find mindfulness and find ease in their life so that their mind doesn't take over everything else and they realize that they're not their thoughts, this is the practical step-by-step -step directions for reaching samadhi. What I think about this word sadaka, the one who practices, what I think is so interesting is that in Hebrew, sadaka is like where you give, where you kind of like uh, donate, right? So the people who are the one who practices they're the ones who are actually receiving the gift of the donation of these amazing texts. So Yoga Sutra 2.1 is Tapas Vadhyaya Ishvara Pranahani Kriya Yogaha. Fiery discipline, self-study, and devotion to the divine self. These are the actions to be taken to realize the state of yoga. So we've all heard tapas, right? Right? But did you know that the yoga mat that you practice upon is called a tapas mat? Mm -hmm. So that before when they didn't have anything in the Hatha Yoga Pradapika, it was made of dung and water and they like took the poop and the water and they made a big paste and then they made like kind of like a concrete floor to practice upon. Then, then when Americans came back to the States, they were like, oh, I can make money off of this plastic thing that we can use to use as a mat and instead of just practicing on the wood floor and it's called a tapas mat. Tapas, the word, is heat, fire, self-discipline, a burning desire, a burning passion. And fire becomes the purifying force. So a tapas mat is where you practice corpse pose, right? And it's just like the breath. To me, what we're doing is ata. We, we die on the mat, and now is the time to begin again. In this moment, you're allowing yourself, just like Bhagavan Das talks a lot about, to be here now. Tapas mat also shows the breath. Because when you inhale, it's like springtime. And when you exhale, for yogis, the exhale is like fall. It's like death, where you let go. So you don't need to be on a tapas mat. You don't need to be physically doing a yoga practice to literally understand the idea of tapas or self-discipline because you're constantly practicing. When you inhale and exhale a conscious active breath, you're creating newness, and then you're letting go and purging and coming back to center. So you can practice yoga anywhere. Uh, yoga itself is the study of who you really are with the self-analysis practice, right? And the end goal of the whole thing is to be free. So what's the Sanskrit word for free or freedom, right? We talked about that last time, moksha. So our ultimate goal for our practice or to reach samadhi in a state of samadhi is to be free of the fluctuations of the mind, of the things that weigh us down,
and really just find equanimity. Get rid of pain and suffering and find balance. So it's pretty much like what Marcy does with her work. <laughs> That's what she's teaching. Svadhyaya is self-study, sacred learning, negative research. So it's teaching you how to be wise. And then Kriya Yoga is the yoga of action or purification. And we always do these Kriyas with love. And I know that someone taught a tech on Kriya Yoga this week. But um, Kriya Yoga, there's different disciplines to or actions that you can do to um, purify. Is anybody neti pot? That's one of the purification actions that yogis do. But there's a whole um, discipline that's just Kriya Yoga. Yoga Sutra 2.3, Avidya, Asmita, Raga, Dvesha, Avnivesha, Panchaklesha. Ignorance, egoism, attachment to pleasure, and aversion to pain, and fear of death, are the five obstacles to attaining a state of yoga. So a klesha is an obstacle or a hindrance to becoming enlightened. And we all have these things that show up in our life and our asana practice that can hinder us from moving forward, right? So just like your t-shirt that um, Rachel's wearing, it is a very much a radical thing to start to become aware of the obstacles and then allow them to uh, to work through them so that we can get to an enlightened state or a space of moksha. In order to anchor into our truth, we have to get rid of these kleshas, these hindrances. And they show up all the time in our lives. Avidya is another word um, of Yoga Sutra 2.3. So that's ignorance, incorrect perception, absence of self-awareness, a lack of clarity, sometimes stupidity. <laughs> where you're not seeing things as they really are. Do you ever get those rose-colored glasses? Right? So that's the avidya. The opposite of avidya is vidya, which means piercing clearly. And when you are pure seeing, we already know what that word is in Sanskrit. We have a gaze point, but it's also a way of seeing things purely, which we call drishti. So vidya is also in the same family of drishti. So when we practice drishti on the mat, that's a way of saying that we are seeing clearly. We have a pure seeing. We have a grounded state of being because we're finding balance. Because we're really not with the drishti looking at the thumb, right? Or looking the sagra drishti, looking at the belly button or down the tip of the nose. But you're actually looking inward to find ease to let go. And then there's the word asmita, which is egoism. And that's the what about me. Raga is attachment to pleasure, and dvesha is aversion to pain. Another way of saying positive negative, right? And then in turn, what we can kind of learn is that when raga and dvesha work together, this pleasure and pain, they're two sides of a coin. You can get too addicted to pleasure just as much as you can get too addicted to pain. So how do you find that middle path? Right? And middle path is talked a lot about in Buddhism. But in yoga, um, that middle path is where we find our equanimity, where we're balancing out the ha and the ta, the sun and the moon, through the forceful breath. 
Abnivesha is survival instinct, fear of death. It's almost like the essence of fear itself, and it's what we, why we do Shavasana. And just like I said, when you come to the four corners of the mat, and it's called a tapas mat, you're using the heat, the self-discipline, and that burning passion of the practice to allow yourself to die today so you can live every day after with no fear of death. So we're getting rid of some of the things that we learn in monotheism, of the fear-based culture, and we're really kind of open to the awareness of this moment, be here now. Does that make sense? So an exercise or what we can talk about is how do the kleshas show up in your asana practice? Avidya, right? Age. Um, I have scoliosis or I'm old and twists are a big problem. When I meet new teachers, I point to my back and say the word scoliosis as if it was my name. Have you ever been in a scenario like that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Asmita is a way to mirror something. The egoism, the what about me. So when I do hip openers, I can feel everyone stare at me because I've, I'm really tight in my hips. And I wonder if that cute boy noticed my shor shorts. Oh my God, this totally sucks. Mm -hmm. Everybody's looking at me. Right? Do you ever have those moments on the mat or in life? Uh, raga is the idea of attaching to pleasure, so it's desire and craving. I love doing advanced versions of poses, even when the teachers don't call for it. It feels so good, and I've always been really awesome at it. And sometimes I even add in gymnastic moves from when I was a kid to spice it up. And then I say, look at me, I'm standing in a handstand. That's actually happened in class, where someone will say, like, look at me. And then Devesha, the clinging, the aversion. This style of yoga is way too many forward folds, and I'm considering trying another style of yoga. Do you ever have that moment in class where, uh, well, maybe you haven't been in your practice teaching yet, but where the student stops doing something and always has a sip of water at that certain pose? <laughs> right. It's going to happen. Or I have to go to the bathroom always at that certain pose. There's a student that always does it. And then the idea of abnivesha. I'll never be able to do a handstand. I saw someone fall out on their hands, and it seems like a really bad idea. And I went to a workshop the teacher taught, and I went into the bathroom. That teacher was crazy. There's those poses that we have to overcome in order to find more balance and ease in our life. Yoga Sutra 2.26. Uh, clear and distinct, unimpaired, discriminative knowledge is the means of liberation. So that single pointed focus, the inhale and the exhale, where you're just in the zone, in that space, is where you can be liberated. 2.28, through the practice of the different accessories to yoga, when impurities are destroyed, there arises enlightenment, culminating in discriminative enlightenment. So we're always changing, we're always evolving, and we're always transforming. And that's why Yoga Sutra 2.29 is huge. Because this is where we're talking about literally where the yamas and niyamas come from. Which is really cool that, let's say, uh, this text came around, what, like over 2,000 years ago? And these 196 compact aphorisms or observations are going to help people 
to literally learn the eight limb path of how to find ease in their life and let go of preconditioning. What I like to think about before we even move into talking about 2.29 is, have you ever heard of effortless effort? Right? So like if you saw a duck and it's on the surface of the water, it looks like, oh, smooth sailing, this is awesome. But underneath, their little feet are going, what webbed feet are just going fast as fast as fast as can be. And that's kind of what the idea of effortless effort is. It still takes work, but also there's a state of ease that you're trying to be present in as you're still working, right? And so, in my opinion, when we talk about the eight limb path, I want you to think about the idea that the eight limbs aren't a ladder that you're climbing up and you can't get up one, the ladder unless you kind of make it from one point to the other, but that it's like a wheel. That if one cog of a wheel, like an old wooden wheel from, you know, like, um, you know, country, uh, uh, what's her name? Laura Ingalls Wilder, that kind of thing, you know? Like, if that wheel is rolling, but one is kind of broken, it's still going to roll. Does that make sense? So when you think about the eight limb path, maybe think about it more organically, that it's not like I have to go from this step to this step to this step, but can you keep it more organic and fluid and have effortless effort? So we all had a check-in and talked about our lives, but we're all present in here, and there might be a lot of chaos going on, but if you keep rolling and you keep yourself really aware, then you're still going to be able to maintain equanimity in your life. The idea of yama, um, ashto means eight and anga means limb. So that, that's where the idea of the eight limb path of ashtanga yoga comes from. That's where they get the title of it. But then the idea of the, the first limb or of the moral restraints, personal observances, postures, breath control, sensory withdrawal, concentration, meditation, and cognitive absorption. The first limb of the eight limb, the yama, I like to think of yama to your mama. <laughs> right? So you all might have already had your reports, but when you yama, um, it's just something that basically it's like the do nots. It's the interpersonal relationships. If you're not going to do it to your mom, then don't do it to anybody else, right? Yama to your mama. The idea of self-restraint or control. And then there's the niyama, the second level, which is fixed observances, rules, precepts, personal dues. It's kind of that intrapersonal thing, like brush your teeth, saucha, cleanliness. And so these become, the yama and the niyama, become the golden rules, almost. Asana, we know of asana as seat or physical posture, but I want you to think about asana as the idea of sitting on the platform of the breath. Because asana doesn't really function very well without the breath. That's one of those limbs that they just, to me, seem like they really go together. So that it's not just about pose. You'll hear a lot of people when you talk about asana that they just think that it's a pose. 
I'm doing an asana practice, but it's not an asana practice. It's really about how do you breathe? Because what's this pose if I just finished a run and I go like this? <laughs> right? It's stretching, but I'm doing a Janushrisasana A. Right? But if I then take and incorporate and inhale, lengthen, exhale, hold, and then I start a really deep cleansing breath ratio, I'm doing what yogis call the Maha Mudra, the greatest of all poses. Because it works so many areas of your body, but it also is using breath to create an experience to open up the conduit, which yogis call the hara line, or the energy system within your body, your central nervous system. Two very different things to the same exact move that you're creating. Pranayama is the fourth limb, or the breath. And breath control is really interesting because when you break down the idea of prana, what do you all think of when you think of prana? Life, energy, right? Prana is the vital life force or the subtle energy that flows through your body. And there's many different cultures and many different ways to think about the idea of prana or to think about the idea of energy. Those of you who are here on Thursday, we talked about the idea of chi. Uh, uh, some people who do like tai chi practices or qigong, you're, move, you're still working with energy, right? As yogis, we work with prana. We work with the subtle energy that flows through the body by combining the prana um, the breath control with different practices. Pra itself means the smallest atom, and yama means mastery, control, to observe or to witness. So I think that's really important too that when you put the idea of pranayama or pra, uh, the breath practice together, you're literally trying to master or control your breath to maintain optimal results. If you're really tired, what breath practice would you do to wake up? Hmm? Retaining breath. Retaining breath. Or you could do like a breath of fire, right? So that instead of just holding on to the breath, but you actually start to kind of make the breath really deep and cathartic. Uh, if you were trying to calm someone down before bed, what kind of breath work would you do? Right? So doing a breath ratio practice where you're actually like exhaling or any brain integration like alternate nostril breathing, right? Because that helps to get out of one state of mind frame to kind of find balance with the hemispheres of the brain. Breath control is an amazing way to master your body and your mind connection. Then if the yama, niyama, asana, and pranayama, those I like to think of as the outer or the gross, now we're moving into the four internal or subtle practices. Pratyahara, which is sensory withdrawal, the retreat of the senses. Dharana, which is concentration or focusing the mind where you're doing one thing at a time. Dhyana is meditation. 
And then samadhi is a state of cognitive absorption. It's that perfect meditation, that super conscious enlightenment, where you're one with your higher self. Just like what I said before, we're always changing, evolving, and transforming. So this practice of the Eight Limb Path teaches you a steady relationship with something that's always transforming. We're ever changing. And, but I want you to think about the fact that in a tornado or a hurricane, there's always calm at the center of the storm. So all of us checked in, but we're all still present here. So we're finding a way to, uh, or a technique to, or a um, practice that allows us to find discipline, to still have ease through the chaos. And that's what the sutras or the, and the eight limb path is really teaching us. To let go of our preconditioning, all you have is right here, and to find the oneness and the goodness of this moment, so that you didn't caught up in the storm. Yoga Sutra 2.30, Ahimsa, Satya, Asteya, Brahmacharya, Aparigraha, and Yama. These are the Yamas, or the moral restraints. Non-violence, truthfulness, non-stealing, continence, and greedlessness. I love, love, love Ahimsa because if you really think about it, how many of you said some nasty thing to yourself in your head today or thought something interesting about someone else or had some kind of like inappropriate mm, self-talk uh, or had a conversation that wasn't very kind today, right? We could keep going on with different things. But to me, the idea of ahimsa is no one really ever gets past the first principle, the first precept, the first kind of essence of what yoga is. So we spend our entire life and existence and experience trying to just practice ahimsa. Um, it's defined by nonviolence, but to me it's nonviolence, just like when you're holding your Anjali Mudra and you're sealing out a practice. It's nonviolence in thought, in speech, and in action. To others, we always think about, but now we have to come into that radical self-acceptance idea of to yourself, radical compassion, radical kindness, that in order to really be nonviolent, it has to be to yourself just as much as it is to other people. It's really easy to be nice to others. It's not, and it's very, very hard to be compassionate to yourself. <coughs> so I'll just kind of plant that seed that when do we ever pass ahimsa? Satya, the idea of truthfulness or honesty and authenticity is what that's kind of talking about. Um, Asteya, non-stealing. Idea of ownership is limited. Okay, so stealing time or being late, that's a form of asteya. But also, um, when Chris was doing her check-in and I said, I 
gave you something. Instead, it's the idea of how can I just listen and be attentive and let you have your space, right? So it's like if someone's crying and you offer them a Kleenex, by offering them a Kleenex and not just being present and holding space for them, you have stole something away from that moment. Does that make sense? Because when you steal time and you're late, you're not going to be able to give back that time, right? When you hold space for someone, you need to just be present. So it's that like um, active listening practices. Do you ever do those? Where you just sit there and listen to someone, but you can't go, mm-hmm, and you can't go or make facial expressions, but you just have to just be there and look at the person. Brahmacharya used to mean that you were like totally abstinent from everything. But I'd like you to think of it as um, sexual continence in the sense of you're using your energy in positive ways and you're using your sense organs in moderation. It used to be, did ever, anybody ever read like Siddhartha or hear about like, um, you know, uh, ancient yogis or from the book autobiography of a yogi where people would be householders and married but then they would go and walk away from their families and then just leave them high and dry but they would go and become these like enlightened beings and live in the forest and stuff like that that's not really um, very nice is it but it's also a way of like that stuff doesn't usually happen now now as yogis and as householders, we need to practice the idea of brahmacharya, where we're using our energy in a positive way, and we're not going to sleep with our best friend's husband, but we're going to um, kind of use our sense organs in moderation. Be more mindful. Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the asaya, what, what, what do you mean with body? Uh, because um, it's a practice of active listening. If I'm having a conversation with you, but then I start going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I'm taking away from just literally listening to you and being present with my breath and my being. It's just that active listening practice. It's really hard not to absorb or take on what someone else is saying, and you can still be attentive and listen without uh, uh, making reactions to someone when they're sharing something to you, but just being totally present to that moment. Yeah. Is that okay? She's not. I know. It's, it's hard. It's really hard. Well, I just feel like they say, you know, if you're a pleasant listener, then you're like, yeah. Or not necessarily say, yeah, but I, I don't know. I guess just Well, active listening practice would be like, I sat across from you for five minutes and you just told me all kinds of stuff and I just listen. So you're still looking, being attentive, but you're not interrupting with your mm -hmm. so they can keep doing what they're doing. Okay. It's a really, it's, it's hard. A, it's very hard. It's a, it makes, it's a vulnerable experience. It really peels away some layers.
Yeah, it's hard because a lot of people, when you're just listening, they think you have resting bitch face. <laughs> if you don't like go, uh-huh, mm. or make expressions. Mm. Yeah. But you can be kind and listen, especially during a very challenging time for someone, and not take away from that experience that they're having. Does that make sense? There's a subtle nuance and fine line with all of this stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A parigraha that uh, in the fifth um, uh, ayama is about greedlessness or non-hoarding. And I think this is really interesting. There's a story from the Upanishad um, that I'm just going to kind of like bastardize right now. But my hands and my feet have an amazing ability to do things. I can grasp onto stuff, right? But my hand can let go. My foot can let go. My mind also can grasp upon things, but it has a really hard time letting go, right? So the idea of a parigraha, this greedlessness, this non-hoarding, is how can we let go of the samskaras, the broken records, and the negativity, and the issues that we like to kind of like sometimes fall back upon because we like to have our stories. I think when you che someone checked in and were like, oh, this is my story. Something, I don't know. But. Interesting, right? The yamas um, are the great vows, the maha. The yamas are intended to govern interpersonal relationships or the way we interact with others. If the goal of yoga is to experience the oneness of being, then the yamas reinforce that goal by minimizing the separation between ourselves and others. So I was like thinking to like one love, but it is kind of true because if yogis are taking the great vow to become one, the mental mind stuff that we sometimes have could be the same crap that everybody else is having, but we don't talk about it. So if we have radical compassion and we are kind to ourselves and then we're kind to others, all of a sudden, then in thoughts, words, and actions, we start elevating onto a higher vibration. But we have to take these great vows and work on ourselves all the time, and a lot of people don't like to do the hard work. Everybody's good? Okay. Saucha Santosha Tapas Vadyaya Yishvara Pranahani Niyama. The 2.232 Yoga Sutra is all about personal observances, cleanliness, contentment, fiery discipline, self-study, and devotion to the divine self. This is like really, really heady stuff, yamas and niyamas. Don't you think? Page 7? Yeah? That's okay. Um, saucha, the idea of cleanliness or purity in thoughts, words, and action. Santosha, contentment, promoting happiness. I really want you to think about, a lot of times people define santosha as happiness, but that's kind of an Oprah thing, right? And then you see Instagram and you're like, oh my God, I'm not happy. Or you see Facebook and you're like, I have fear of missing out. I'm not happy. I'm not doing all of this stuff. Well, try to really be content and find equanimity within your life versus like, I need to be happy in it, right? That's just my personal little note there. So saucha, cleanliness, santosha, tapas we just discussed, 
right? So that fiery discipline, that burning passion. Svadhyaya is beautiful because it's what you're doing right here. You're practicing studying, but then through the process of practicing studying as yoga teachers, in, you want to journal and you want to really self-study and see how you can constantly transform and change and improve. Because that's really a great thing about being a yoga teacher is that you're always pushing the boundaries to elevate yourself as you elevate others. And that's a really, really big deal because people get very set in their ways and say we have a partner that is like not into yoga. How can you allow them to be on their path and show them compassion as you are transforming and changing, but also still seeing what brought you together and then allowing them to evolve on their own time by being a good representative and being a good kind of like um, a vehicle for them to see, oh, it's not that hard because she's doing it or he's doing it so that they can then take themselves on their own journey, in their own experience, in their own time. The idea of um, Ishvara is God or divinity. So that we're talking about um, all of these amazing ways to find your divine self by the personal observances of cleanliness. Simple, right? or contentment, or having the discipline to come to your mat every day, or to journal every day, or to have a breathwork practice every day, or something that grounds you in your truth every day, and always looking within to see how you can make yourself more divine or more uh, pure of heart. So in a way, yogis are revolutionary. Because we're always trying to evolve. Yoga Sutra 2.33 When disturbed by disturbing thoughts, reflect on the opposite. Uh, the Pratipaksha, the opposite side, and Bhav is a feeling or understanding or reflection. So I really want you to think about this because this is really about more reframing than it is about being in denial. Everything is impermanent, so too this shall pass. A good teacher creates awareness, pushes people's buttons, just enough to encourage a broader perspective and allows the student to go on their own journey. So have you ever been able to shift your state of mind consciously and at your own will? This is yoga. So what kind of tools do you, do you use to rewire your brain or release the samskaras? What, what do you do to change your mood or to change your life? I know if I do breathwork practices, it really helps me. Or if I meditate in the morning, whoa, it really sets me on this great kind of path where I can be um, more compassionate and practice ahimsa. Uh, there's lots of other practices like EMDR, the tapping, um, going out in nature is really huge, laughing, just read a great article about tickling in the BBC today, how important the tickle is. 
think that uh, we need to really remember the tapas, um, the discipline of um, realizing that we have to embrace all aspects of our being, which is tejas. I think we talked about that last two weeks ago, but that we have many different facets, but you can't negate something because if you negate it, it's going to erupt and become something. But if you allow yourself to embrace all facets of your being, you can literally shift your state of mind and you can condition yourself and create awareness to, um, through rewiring your brain to say, oh, that is a part of me, but I don't need to be that. I can be this. That you can elevate yourself to um, different, better, more positive. Everybody's very quiet. <laughs> Everybody okay? Okay. 2.35, ahimsa. And it starts going into all of these great Sanskrit words. But this is why we practice non-harming. If we make it a practice to never harm others in your thoughts, words, and in actions, then in your presence all conflicts come to an end. So this is when you see someone and they um, have that special something. Right? That they just uh, walk into a room and everything gets a little bit more easy, more grounded, more kind of level. But then have you ever had someone come to, well, I don't know, to your class or into your life where you're like, well, that person has really bad energy and you're just like, I gotta like kind of step back away from them? <laughs> yeah. We want to be the positive vibes kind of people. Henry James has a quote that the three things in life are important. The first is to be kind, the second is to be kind, and the third is to be kind. We really, really want to practice the non-harming and to show the world that through non-violence, you and others can become better. And that is pretty huge right now during the time of Aquarius. Yoga Sutra 2.46, Shtira Sukha Asanam. When Patanjali, this is where he's really talking about the asana practice. The seat should be steady and joyful. Shtira is steady, grounded, and strong. And then the idea of um, Sukha is joyful, sweet, and easy. So you're ensuring that each asana is connected it's a balance of steady and easeful. So that the idea of um, shtira sukha is the um, balance of motion and stillness, effort with effortlessness. That we're really finding mm, al dente pasta, right? If you take the pasta out of the container and you just have like a big long spaghetti noodle, it's going to crack, right? It's brittle, it's hard. But then, if you overcook it, it gets really grody, right? And it's like all soggy and all that starch is all sticky and gross and it's just like bleh. But if you find that perfect little middle path, almost like Goldilocks is just right. Yeah. It's just, that's what we're looking for in the idea of shtira and sukha. But there's a pose in yoga called um, 
Uplifti or Tolasana. Have you ever seen like the scale of the lawyer symbol of the scales? That's kind of what this Shira Sukha is really talking about. How can you balance the scales? It's gonna be a little bit of this. It's gonna be a little bit of that. But ultimately you can find the equanimity. You can find the ease as you work with the breath. And that is talking all about book two. So book one, we learned in Samadhi Pada all about integration and concentration. And that's where you're getting like a huge roadmap to where you're going. But book two, this is really saying like, here's the tips and tools, here's the golden rules. And if you really want it badly, you're gonna have to work at it through tapas, through that fiery discipline. And then in turn, the book two, which is called Sadhana Pada, it is teaching you how to find or how to realize that samadhi, 